The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. You deemed important for us to know, so you included them in your word. Multiple warnings attached to them to be taking heed to your word and beware of those that are perverting your word because it's through these perversions that um, human error and satanic error creeps in and nullifies that message that would give us the means to have victory over our spiritual enemies, uh, nullify the means by which we can mature and hinder that process that you put in place for the very purpose of uh, transforming us in this present time uh, into the image of Christ as we wait for the appearance of, of your son to bring that transformation into completion. So Father, as we look to your word, help us to be ones that are <clears throat> desirous of knowing what is true and willing to let go of those preconceived ideas that we might have thoughts and opinions that would run contrary to your word and that would hinder us from understanding uh, what you would have us to understand concerning these things so that we might be uh, walking well-pleasing to you in all things. Amen. I'm going to do a little bit of review here. We spent a lot of time going through some different verses and uh, I think sometimes when we spend so much time going through a subject we can kind of maybe lose track of where we started and so I'm going to go back and just hit some of the high points of some of the main verses we've been covering and stringing together and see uh, the, the direction that this has been going and, and where we're planning on ending up. Uh, we're coming close to the end of this. It's been a lot of, of uh, preface work uh, laying a foundation for, for Satan's methods and the means by which he uses to uh, make his message, his uh, purpose appealing to us, and we're going to get into some specifics. I planned on it this week, but I, I think we may actually end up uh, doing most of this next week, since I want to kind of review and bring this up to date on what we've looked at so far, as well as throw in a couple of new things here. And then we'll start looking at specific areas where Satan uh, seems in my mind to clearly influence uh, Christian, uh, theology, biblical theology that uh, impacts um, our understanding and creates misunderstanding towards uh, the Christian life in particular. And so <clears throat> looking back at uh, 1 Kings, we have this, this uh, story concerning Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 22. We're not going to go over in great detail. Like I say, this is mostly review because I want to cover a number of scriptures and, and see how these seem to uh, string together <coughs> as it relates to this subject. In 1 Kings chapter 22, <coughs> verse, starting in verse 12, we have this historical account of Jeroboam, who is the king of Judah, and Ahab, who is the king of Israel. The nation has been split, and there has been uh, some, some things going on that uh, Ahab is uh, trying to rectify. There was a, there was a uh, contract made between uh, Ahab and, uh, I think it was Syria, uh, the nation of Aram, I believe, in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, the nation of Aram. Not, not this Aram. <laughs> And, and some of the conditions of that contract or covenant was that certain cities would be deeded back over to Israel, and that wasn't completed. We see that in chapter 18. Ramoth Gilead was never brought over. Apparently, it was part. It seems uh, from the context, it appears like that was part of the contract. And so Ahab has decided to try to take it by force. He's contracted with Jeroboam to uh, unite the armies of, of Israel and Judah together to fight the Syrian army and take uh, uh, Ramoth Gilead back and after he's decided to do this this is what this is 
one thing that's important for us to get from this is because you know the things that are written before are written for our learning. We get illustrations of what we're not supposed to do from what we see that many people did in the Old Testament. And one of the things we can learn from this is what not to do is make a determination of what we're going to do and then go to God and seek his blessing for it. And you see that all the time in Christian circles. People make a decision and then they ask God to bless them in their deed. But it's after they've already made the decision of what they're going to do. It's before they've ever made any, any uh, given any thought as to whether it's really God's will for this uh, to occur or not. And that's exactly what, what Ahab has done. And so in, in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 12, it says, All the prophets were prophesying, thus saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it to the hand of the king. So, now these prophets, uh, back in chapter 18, uh, Elijah had killed uh, 400 of the prophets. Uh, there, was, there was about 750 prophets altogether. Of, there were prophets of Jezebel and of, of Ahab. Uh, there was 400 prophets of Baal, and there's 350 prophets of, of Asherah, who was a, a female deity. Baal was a male deity, so there's prophets uh, for different deities. And Elijah is said to have killed the 400 prophets of Baal, but there's nothing said about whether he killed the prophets of Asherah or not. Now, this event in chapter 22 is three years after what happens in chapter 18. And these prophets now, they're either the 350 prophets that were not killed by Elijah in chapter 18, or after a period of three years, there have been more prophets uh, recruited, uh, raised up, or whatever, uh, false prophets that are now serving in the place of the 400. <laughs> either way, it's clear that these prophets that are mentioned here are false prophets and, and we're going to get information as to where they get their prophecy from in, in the in the coming verses so these prophets are prophesying to ahab saying go go do uh, uh god's going to deliver these into your hand but remember ahab's already made the decision to do this so we can see that these prophets are telling ahab to do what he's already decided to do in other words they're tickling his ears they're telling him what he wants to hear uh, verse 14, Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. <clears throat> oh, I skipped 13. Verse 13 says, the messenger who went to summon Micaiah, Micaiah is a prophet of the Lord, uh, spoke to him saying, behold now the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. They're all telling him what he wants to hear. They're tickling his ears. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. So we don't care what God really tells you. They probably didn't believe that God was going to speak by him anyway. But he says, we want you to uh, follow peer, peer pressure. We want you to say the same thing that these other prophets are saying. And Micah said that uh, I'll, I'll tell him what I think the Lord uh, wants me to say, regardless of what the king wants to hear. And what the message that Micaiah gives to him in verse 20, Micaiah tells him, tells Ahab exactly where his prophets are getting their information from. Tells her, lays it out in black and white. There's, there's no room for needing to be some uh, mystic to interpret or find some hidden meaning here. Micah lays it out really clearly, and he says in verse 20, the Lord said, Micaiah is telling Ahab what the Lord said to him, the Lord said, who will who entice, and this word entice actually is the Hebrew word we looked at as the word to persuade. Uh, entice sounds like the Lord is trying to um, use deception, and God doesn't do that. God doesn't use deception. He wasn't trying to entice Ahab to do anything. He was trying to persuade him. He was trying to persuade Ahab to do exactly what Ahab already wanted to do. Okay, he was uh, giving him uh, the uh, for intestinal fortitude to proceed with a course of action that he had already made the decision he was going to do. So the Lord said, who will persuade Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? Not to wage battle and win like his prophets are saying. Who will entice him to go up and fall? One, he's talking to spirit beings here. Uh, uh, he's, uh, actually, I should have looked at verse 19. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. So these uh, messengers that the Lord is talking to are spirit beings. And they're fallen spirit beings because they're, they're offering to use um, uh, unrighteousness to accomplish the Lord's purpose. So these are not uh, elect spirit beings. These are fallen spirit beings that still have access to the throne room of God and are in communication with what uh, with the Lord here. So the Lord says, 
uh, the Spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, in verse 21, says, I will, and I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, How? He said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, You are to persuade him and also prevail. God didn't tell him to lie. He asked who would persuade him, and the spirit volunteered to lie. And the Lord said, Well, go ahead and do what you're going to do. But the Lord didn't ask him to lie. He asked him to persuade him that this uh, spirit being is going to use lies, which indicates this is one uh, of Satan's uh, followers, one of his uh, hosts that um, is involved with the Satan's rebellion. <clears throat> Go and persuade him, verse 22. Verse 23, it says, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving, a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. We're in 1 Kings chapter 22. So we have this message that Micah tells Ahab exactly where his prophets are getting their information from. And he's telling Ahab exactly what is really going to happen. He says, you go up to Great Gilead and you're going to fall and all of your prophets are lying to you. And so uh, Ahab still uh, refuses to believe the mouth of Micah. He listens to his, his own prophets and we know the story that he went and he did indeed fall. So we have this, this message here that indicates that, that first of all we have these false prophets and it's very clearly indicated that these false prophets were directly influenced by satanic um, empowerment. Satan's messengers, Satan's spirit beings that were uh, following Satan's methodology, lying spirits, Satan's father of lies, so these individuals are are kowtowing to Satan's methodology. They're, they're using lies and deception to further their uh, Satan's uh, purpose. And <clears throat> these false prophets are getting direct influence from these demonic beings. And the method that they use to entice Ahab is to tell Ahab has made an unrighteous course of action and these spirit beings are telling him exactly what he wants to hear. And so we can get an idea of one, one aspect of Satan's methodology is he uses deception to make us believe that what we want to hear is exactly what God wants us to be doing in the first place. We make a decision and then it can end up in disaster. That's what happened with Ahab. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 then, in light of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we have this statement by Paul to the Corinthians. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul has come to... Corinth after uh, after spending some time at Mars Hill and he's been in, engaging in uh, philosophical debate on Mars Hill. His ministry there was not effective uh, and so when he came to Corinth he realized that what he'd been doing at Mars Hill was not really what God wanted him to do. He was using philosophy and uh, human logic to try to uh, coerce them into believing so in, in chapter 2 when he comes to Corinth he said when I, came, when I came to you brothers I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God some, uh, some uh, manuscripts say the mystery of God here uh, with lofty speech or wisdom for I declared to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified so when he comes to Corinth he realized that his methodology at Mars Hill was flawed that he was using uh, human logic. He was doing what he did best. He was a uh, Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was educated in the highest education that he could attain to in his under his system, and he was relying upon that and philosophy to try and convince these other philosophers. That's what they enjoyed doing. That's what they engaged in. So he was uh, using their methodology to try to proclaim a gospel of salvation, and it did not work. And so when he came here, he threw that in the garbage can. He realized that that was nonsense. And he said, so when I came to you, I decided to know nothing but Christ crucified. I threw that philosophy in the garbage where it belonged, and I determined to know nothing but Christ crucified. And that's what he goes through in the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He goes into great length as to why the gospel of salvation is important 
and he's going to address a couple of things here as to why uh, wisdom and philosophy uh, are, are uh, ill-advised. In fact, I think it's in verse 17, he's, he says, in, of chapter 1, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Uh, the word empty, the phrase emptied of its power, is a word for this translated vain in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, this is the verbal form. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, you have an adjective, but here it's, it's describing something that actively decomposes the gospel of salvation. This wisdom, this philosophy, has an active effect upon the gospel and it empties of its effectiveness. It destroys its effectiveness. And so uh, when he he's introducing this, when it was at Mars Hill, I tried to use philosophy and what I was actually doing is I was actually running contrary to God's purpose. Paul realizes error and he says, that what I was doing on Mars Hill was actually contrary to the gospel of salvation. I was doing something that empties the gospel of its effectiveness. And so when he comes to chapter 2, he says, that's why when I came to determined to know nothing but Christ crucified. I went back to the gospel because it's the gospel of salvation. It's, it's the power of God for salvation. It's not through wisdom of, of human words. It's not through logic. It's not through philosophy. It's the, the power of God for salvation is the gospel of salvation and that alone. So that's what he determines to do in, in chapter 2. So he says in verse 1, I, can't, I did not proclaim to you the testimony of God, nor the mystery of God, with lofty speech or philosophy, wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Demonstration of the spirit of power because it's gospel of salvation is the power of God to salvation. It's not through the wisdom of words. His, his, uh, his pride and how, how well he, uh, how eloquent he was in proclaiming this logical reason why they should uh, accept the God of the Bible uh, was not effective. It's a, and, and so he finally recognized it. And he recognized that the gospel of salvation is the power that brings salvation. And that demonstrates God's power. Verse 5, so that your faith not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we impart or we speak wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are, um, who are passing away or uh, rendered... Um, idols, they're, they're, they're rendered ineffective. We speak wisdom uh, in mystery, or by mystery, even the hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So what he's saying here, he's not uh, so much as identifying a specific mystery, he's identifying what a mystery is, and he's giving the definition of a mystery here. A biblical mystery is not something that we can't know. I had a book a while back, I, I've gotten rid of it because I, I just didn't find it valuable, but it was written by a president of a, of a seminary that uh, historically has been very fundamental in his teaching, and, he, and the title of the book is, is The Mystery of God's Will. And through the entire book, he writes of a mystery, he associates mystery with God's will as something that is impossible for us to know. And through the entire book, he indicates that we can't know God's will. And so therefore, just do the conclusion at the end of the book is do the best you can and it'll all work out okay in the end. That flies completely in the, in the face of, of God's own word that says, don't be unwise, but knowing what the will of God is. He wouldn't tell us to know what God's will is if it was impossible for us to know it. So God's will is not a mystery that can't be known. <clears throat> Uh, a mystery is not something that we cannot come to, to grips with. It's something that God has given us to know that was not revealed in the past. And it's, it's something that was specifically given to us for the purpose of bringing to maturity. That's what he says here. Now, among the mature, verse 6, we speak wisdom. Not a wisdom of the age. It has nothing to do with philosophy classes you're going to get in college. Or it's not going to get into something you're going to learn through uh, exercising yourself and becoming proficient in debate class. It's, it has nothing to do with uh, wisdom from this age or the rulers of this age. They're rendered inoperative by the wisdom from God. He says, we are speaking 
wisdom from God, the hidden wisdom, we speak in, in, in a mystery. And so these mysteries are something that is being revealed. They are speaking these mysteries, and they're being revealed for the very purpose of bringing us to maturity. And had the rulers of this age, talking about demonic forces, spirit beings <clears throat> that are in, empowered uh, in functioning in, uh, in individuals that are in positions of authority within this world system, these <clears throat> world rulers, <clears throat> had they understood that one of the main purposes of one of the results of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that there is going to be things associated with that that were going to enable us to be brought to maturity. And had the rulers of this age understood that that was part of the reason for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it wasn't just to forgive us of our sins. That's what we, we assume, we Christians, assume that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross just was to forgive us of our sins. Well, that's the start of it, but that's not the entirety of it. Our, our salvation involves much more than just being forgiven of our sins, and that's uh, so much of what Josh is going through in the afternoon class is that the death, burial, and resurrection, we are counted to have shared in his death, burial, and resurrection. We're to frame our mind in the fact that we share in his resurrection. So we are seen by God in the same place that the resurrected Christ is, at the right hand of the Father. And living that life gives us the capacity to demonstrate Christ's quality, God's quality of life right here and now. And that's what he's going to address in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when we get there. <clears throat> when he says, actually in chapter 3, in verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3.18, says, We all, with unveiled face, having a face that's been unveiled, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, that's a present tense, we are being, right at this very moment, we are being transformed into the same image. The same image is who? Same image is the Lord. Who is the Lord? The glorified, resurrected Christ who seated at the right hand of the Father. We are being transformed into that same image. That's part of our salvation. That's the next step beyond Christ died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again that gives us our initial salvation because we have that salvation. An aspect very important aspect of that salvation is that death, burial, and resurrection gives us the foundation for this transformation to take place. So we can participate in God's purpose and being transformed right now into the image of the resurrected, glorified Lord. Now, it's not going to be completed, obviously, in this life, but we can participate in that process now. And at the rapture, when we see the Lord, that transformation becomes complete instantaneously. We are instantly transformed completely. But right now we can share in that glory to a certain extent. And it says we are being transformed into the same image right now. It's a present tense. We are being transformed right now. And then he goes on to say at the end, and we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. That's talking about a, a process of transformation. It's not talking about an instantaneous change. We're being changed from one degree to another. In other words, we are maturing. We are becoming more and more like the resurrected Christ. As we become more mature, we are demonstrating God's character more consistently. If we are maturing, if we're putting into practice these things that God has given us, we are Framing our minds where it's supposed to be, we're living our life where the Lord is, is living uh, mentally at the right hand of the Father, and we are allowing God to make this transformation take place. We are gradually maturing, becoming more and more like the glorified, resurrected Christ, more and more conformed into His image. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, this is a work that is completely from God. Remember last week we, we talked about a contrast between. Uh, the lie and the truth. The lie is from Satan that says, I can make myself like God. That is the foundation that Satan uses to promote his entire system is based upon that, that false premise. I can make myself like God and he tries to sell that bill of goods to the unsaved and he tries to sell it to you and I. And he does that through his system of well, we'll look at that and jump on the head here. 
but he sells that he tries to sell that bill of goods so we can be like him but that lie flies in the contrast in the face of another doctrine that's taught in scripture called the truth and the truth is that doctrine that teaches that there are things that only God can do and this transformation he doesn't use the term the truth here but he says this comes from the Lord through the spirit this transformation can only come from God he's the only one that can do it Satan's methodology says you can do it yourself God's method says it only comes from the Lord it only God can do it you participate in it by thinking correctly but God is the one who makes this transformation come, take place and so we have this this uh, contradiction in the Word of God uh, two opposing forces where you have Satan uh, promoting his system that says you can make yourself like God independent from God and you have God saying you can join me in this but this is work that can only be done can only come about be accomplished by me and so Satan has a realm of doctrine that he promotes his system with and God has a realm of doctrine that he promotes his system with and we have I won't say countless, but a, a lot of warning in Scripture concerning Satan's methodology. We're given uh, clear references that identify Satan's methodology, but there's something that Satan does <clears throat> that that throws a monkey work in the in the in, in, our, in the um, in the whole process. In that, uh, I didn't write the the passage down. We looked at it already, and I think it's in First Corinthians chapter two, where it says uh, that Satan works with the conclusions of our mind. That 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 his methods primarily involve uh, messing with our thinking so we come up with false conclusions. And so because he's a liar, he's a deceiver, that uh, he, he works in such a way that we are convinced that his methods are actually God's methods. The conclusions we come up with are false, we embrace Satan's methods, and then we wonder why our lives are a mess. So we have this statement in First Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 4, that our gospel is veiled, this good news that we can be transformed by God, it's veiled because the God of the age says, yes, you can be changed, but through your own efforts. And so we looked at some of the basic tenets of, of just some of the classic cults last week, and we said there's, there's at least two basic tenets that are common to all of these false cults. The, the, at the root of all, all of them is that they deny some aspect of the deity of some aspect of the deity of Christ. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ, okay? Not some aspect of it, they deny his deity, period. And they teach a method that promotes that lie. You can make yourself like God. That is something that we call what starts with a big L. Legalism. It can be Mosaic law, it can be any type of a legal system that you come up with on your own, an opinion that you have, that this must be what God would find acceptable. Uh, look at, uh, is it in uh, Colossians chapter 4? Colossians chapter 4, verse 3 and verse 9. <clears throat> chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, says, if Christ, if together with Christ you died to the elemental, if you have an English uh, standard version, it says the elemental spirits, there's nothing to do with spirits here, it's, it's a neuter word, and it's a word for things, it's the elemental things, uh, verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20, Colossians, if you died together with, and this word, 
I, I say together with, it's word with, there's two words for with. You have the word pursuant, which refers to a very close union with, and you have meta, which is a loose association. And this is a word that refers to a very close union. So our, our uh, Christ's death, we are very closely united, associated with Christ's death. And that's why God tells us to consider ourselves, reckon ourselves dead to sin, because we shared in Christ's death. Christ died to the sin nature, and we shared in that death, we shared in his resurrection. We're closely united with that, because God counts us to have participated in that. And he says, if, and it's true, together with Christ, you died to the elemental things of the world system, the cosmos, as if you were still alive in the world system. In other words, if you... If, if you hadn't been, as if you hadn't been crucified to the, to the things of the world system, but you have. Why, as if you were still alive in the world system, do you still submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? So we have this, this statement here that the world system has as its building blocks, its fundamental principles that make it operate, elemental things that he describes as don't taste, don't touch, uh, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, okay? We, that's, that's another way of saying legalism. Now, uh, I, I actually think that we could, uh, what's the word I want, paraphrase this and even use slightly simpler terms. If we look at the elemental things of the world system, the building blocks of the world system could be actually simplified to convey the idea of that which manipulates people. If you look at education, what does education do? Education is designed to, manip to manipulate you. It's designed to make you think that you can only be, we looked at this direct statement from the education system, um, educational system, it says you can only be a valuable member of society if you have an, an education. And the higher education you attain to, the more value you have to society. Is this explaining why somebody who has a PhD makes more money than a person who has a master's degree, who makes more money than a person who has a associate's degree that makes more money that has no degree? It's because the world system is designed to make us brainwashed into thinking that a person who has a higher degree of education has more value. And that education might not have anything to do with the job you're actually doing, but they'll pay you more for the higher the education you have, regardless of what that education is in, in most cases. Now there's exceptions to that, but that's basically how the world system operates. And so that is designed to manipulate people. That's another way, brainwashing is another way of saying manipulate and making me believe I'm worth more as a human being if I have what the world system says makes me valuable. God says he's not a respecter of persons. Our degree of education can help us in the world system, but it, it doesn't make me more more valuable person in God's eyes. But uh, so we have we have this system, and the system is designed by Satan. Go to Second uh, Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter three, verse. Well, let's go to. Let's take it from verse one. Yeah. Second uh, Peter chapter three, verse one. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world system, the cosmos, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So here we have a statement that this system, that we're, we're told that Satan is the god of this world system. He's the one that put this system into practice. And we can look at Luke chapter 11, 
uh, for time's sake, we won't go there. But if you look at Luke chapter 11, we're told that this world system that be actually began with Cain, when Cain was, was uh, after he killed his brother, he went out from the Lord. He was supposed to be a wanderer and a vagabond. And you can see from the system there, he didn't become a wanderer and a bag vagabond. He disobeyed the Lord. And rather than being a wanderer, he established himself. He settled down and he built a city. And from that city began uh, all of the works of the, the foundational principles of the world system. And Luke tells us that that was the beginning of the world system. And the flood brought an end to that world system. God destroyed that world system because it was designed by Satan. And it was contrary to God's purposes. But what did Satan do as soon as the, as the flood waters receded? What was one of the very first things that he did after the flood receded? He set up a new world system. God didn't prevent him from doing that. He made it clear that that wasn't what he desired man to, to attain to or to pursue, but he didn't prevent Satan from doing it. And so Satan built a new system. And so this system probably has some changes from the first one. I mean, certainly the elements that are involved in this world system, some of it are different, but the basic tenets of the world system have not changed. The basic elemental building blocks of the world system are to manipulate human beings so that they are brainwashed into believing the lie. The fact that you can make yourself like God and through human effort. And we looked last week that through all these different, to, to the unsaved, uh, he uses, Satan uses religion within the world system for, for, to promote that, that message. And within the unsaved, he promotes that message. He, uh, I talked it, I used the illustration of wrapping paper. He, he wraps that message up in a lot of different colored wrapping papers. So uh, you've got uh, different cults out there, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, you've got all, all these different uh, religious systems out there that claim to be Christian, but they uh, they deny the deity of Christ. But they and they promote a different theological system to a, to a large degree. But if you look at the foundational principle of each one of these, they all have as their root a denial of the deity of Christ and the message that you can make yourself like God. In other words, they deny the grace of God, they pervert the grace of God, and they promote a works type of salvation. A works type of salvation is just another way of saying you can make yourself like God. That's what works salvation is. And every single one of these false religious systems out there promote that lie, the lie, that is Satan's lie. Satan wraps it up in different packages because different people like different things. They like different colored wrapping paper. Now, and so you got some people that prefer Joseph Smith's message. You've got some people that, that prefer Mary Baker Eddy's message. They wrap it up in different packages to appeal to different people's mindsets. But it's all the same message, just wrapped up in different paper. So the very question. Oh. <coughs> When you say that Satan set up a new world system after the flood, are you talking about a specific verse in chapter 9, or are you talking more like the Tower of Babel that's in chapter 11? What, I, I wasn't referring specifically to chapter 11. Uh, chapter 11 of, are you, are you talking about the Tower of you Babel? You said, was what did he do after he set up a new world system? Okay. I'm just asking what verses where you were referring to for that? The fact that the New Testament constantly refers to, well, even the Old Testament talks about the world system, and, and you have throughout the entire uh, uh, testimony of the Old Testament, the elements of the world system in place. You have human government, you have religion in place, you have false so religious system. So, yeah, generalizing that uh, okay. you, you can see that being established as soon as uh, the floodwaters receded, pretty much, uh, you know, after you get through all those long tedious chapters of begets in, in, in Genesis, uh, you have, you can see the elements of the world system being reestablished again. And we're told that Satan is the, is the author of that, so we can just, we can infer from that that maybe not the first, I'm not saying it's the first thing, but certainly one of the very first things Satan did was begin work re, uh, building that system as soon as, as uh, the floodwaters receded with those that would, uh, those were alive at that time. We see those elements are still in, in, in evidence today. Religion, education, and uh, and uh, and religion 
are two of the, the main main forces, main elements that Satan used to, is to promote this system. And at the very core of both are uh, a denial of God's purpose and God's methods. I think the one that stands out to me is, I'm just listening, but it, it is religion. You know, you look at most people groups, they are religious. And there's, there's a wide variety. When you go to Papua New Guinea, each tribe has some sort of religious belief system that at some point was created, right? Like, how, who, who were the first people in that tribe to say, hey, we are going to put our hope in, you know, whatever, animistic belief or, I don't know, you know? But people are very religious. And, and, I, would, and I would even argue, like, sincere. You know, like a sincere Buddhist is very sincere, very dedicated, and very committed. Um, but you do scripture, you would say misguided. Well, we have to keep in mind the question that Leslie asked last week. Does that mean I am I saying that I'm opposed to education? Am I opposed to? You better not, because I uh, get some dodgeballs going here. <laughs> and the question is absolutely not. We live in the world system, and we rely upon the world system. You know, you may think that I'm a terrible sinner for saying this, but you know how I get to work every day? I drive a car. That car is manufactured by elements within the world system. It's powered by industry that produces the means. So we rely upon the world system. The instruction that we have from God's word is not to avoid using the world system. The instruction we have from God in first in first John 2 5, 215, is not to not use the world system. He doesn't tell us that the world system is not to be used in any way, shape, or form. We are given two instructions concerning the world system. And that's Revelation Jesus, I'm not going to find it First John chapter 2, 15, he says, Don't love or stop loving the world system or the things in the world system. So we have two things here that are mentioned. It's not one thing, we have two things. He said, uh, don't love or stop loving the world system and the things within the world system. So there's two, two different things being mentioned here. The system itself and the things in the system. They're not the same thing. The things in the system are, well, for instance, I just mentioned I drive to work in a car that's part of the world system. I buy gasoline. It's, it's manufactured by industry that is part of the world system. And the uh, people that, that uh, run that industry are uh, do so because they're educated individuals. I would not want somebody manufacturing my gasoline that knows nothing about how gasoline is made or what it's supposed to do. I want somebody that knows what gasoline is, what it's supposed to do, and how to make it. <laughs> that comes from education. And so we don't, God is not saying that we are not to use any element of the, of the world system. He doesn't tell us that. He says we're not to develop or direct a love towards that, or that's a sacrificial love towards the things in the world system. But he also says, and I don't think any of us have a hard time understanding what the things of the system is. It could be religion, it can be education. Entertainment. <clears throat> Entertainment, that, that's a biggie. Uh, th there's all kinds of things, things within the world system. But he, but he also says, don't love the system itself. And when he says, don't love the, world, the system itself, what I think he's referring to here is, is what makes it work, the, the mechanism of action. You know, what Colossians is saying, the basic building blocks, the elemental things that that put it together. And so uh, some of the things that I would, the most basic uh, element of the world system, I go back to what I think is uh, manipulation. The world system is designed to manipulate us. It's designed to uh, get us to direct our focus in the wrong direction, is to get us to be distracted from what God wants us to be doing. So it's, it's to control our behavior in a, in, and direct it in a certain direction. And generally speaking, that direction is opposed to the things of God. Every single aspect of it is not. You know, God doesn't, and I may get myself into trouble here by saying this, but uh, God's word doesn't endorse Amish as being the only uh, source of religion because they only accept things that are old fashioned in the world system. They don't do take things that are modern, which even that's not true. That's kind of a, a maybe a silly illustration, but that's what where the direction we would have to go if God was telling us not to use the world system at all. 
we'd be hard pressed to survive in this world if we didn't use the world system. But he says, don't fall in love and direct the sacrificial God's kind of love towards the things of that system or the system itself. And the system itself, uh, loving the system, that that's the people that, that just, that um, love how, Love, love to love how the system works, and and they throw themselves into the system because they, they like they love how it works. Um, you know, this may get me into trouble too. But so we're talking about education. Uh, what does what do the different tiers of government do? What what's what what are they what do they do? They manipulate human behavior. They they. Uh, direct human behavior they control human behavior God himself uses human government in his purpose but there are people that just love how the whole system works so they throw themselves into the system because they like how it works and want to manipulate the system they want to try to improve the system make it benefit themselves they like how it works and they want to try to manipulate for their own benefit or just make it better or there may be different different motives but they like how it works and they want to try to get their fingers into it and, and throw themselves into the system. I and think what you're trying to say is that loving the word system means that you think that that's the end all be all, the savior of mankind. Education is your savior, that you know, you just haven't lived if you don't have this experience, that your business, you know, commerce is all there is, or that. Um, you know, and that so you sacrifice for that in every way, shape, or form. So because you think that's the answer for mankind, not Jesus. And it's a source of happiness. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. And people try, and taking that even a step further is that they believe it's through, again because of Satan's lies through his his. Um, messengers that he promotes his methodology through is he has Christians convinced that we have to make the system work for God to come back and take his position within that system and so he brainwashes us into thinking we have to throw ourselves wholeheartedly into this system because that's what God wants us to do again he, he messes with our the conclusions we come to so we think that Satan's methodology is actually God's methodology so we throw ourselves into the system because after all would God want us to make this place a godly place to live and so we spend all our efforts and energies trying to make unsaved people act like saved people and we try to pass legislation that force manipulate people force unsaved people to behave like saved people and so the world system ultimately is designed to manipulate people and it tries to get us to manipulate unsaved people to act like saved people and so you end up with a whole lot of people that look like saved people going to hell still because they're still not saved so this whole system is designed to just grab our attention and take it off of the things of god and it's designed in such a way that satan convinces us that if we throw ourselves wholeheartedly into it we're actually accomplishing what god wants us to do and so uh, these are uh, some of the things that that Satan uh, ultimately is doing and, and we have certainly we, we can go through the list and we, I, I plan on doing this it, it won't take us very long not today but go through a list of what Satan's specific lusts are he's a liar he, he tempts us to lie he tempts us to be discouraged he tempts us to be bitter he tempts us <clears throat> to have specific attitudes that, or behaviors that are contrary to God, but as we're looking at his actual methodology, we're looking at how he twists and distorts things so that we actually are participating in his program while all the time believing we're actually participating in what God wants us to be doing. And that's the ultimate danger for Christians is because he packages his, his, uh, his um, what's the word? He packages his message to us differently than he packages it for the unsaved a lot of times and so that package begins with the world system the the, the the package that he tries to sell to us is this system that he has designed within the world system is very complex it's it's uh, uh, 
the mechanisms that, that work that make it function are very complex. But if you break it down to all of its elemental principles, you can see that ultimately, basically, the whole system is designed to be functioning counterproductive to God's purpose. But that's just the beginning of his system. Within the world system, he has religion. And within religion, he directs uh, certain activities towards the, the unsaved. But he also directs certain activities towards the saved. And that's what we're looking at introducing this week and starting to go next week is where does this pack what's included in this package that he tries to sell us go to first Timothy actually look at second Timothy first second Timothy chapter 4 second Timothy chapter 4 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 3, Paul is, is going to tell some. He's, he's building upon something that he told Timothy back in 1 Timothy. We're going to look at 2 Timothy first. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul is warning Timothy that the time is coming when people will not endure healthy teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own lusts, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. <clears throat> so Paul's warning, warning Timothy that uh, Christians, now I'm talking about unsaved people here, although they I'm sure would be included, but they've all this has always been true of the unsaved. But Christians are going to turn away from teaching that is healthy. Healthy teaching is that teaching that promotes a salvation that allows me to participate, participate, I get my words out here, to participate in that work that God has designed for me to transform me right now in the present into the image of Christ. That's healthy teaching. It keeps me healthy because it promotes spiritual growth. Spiritual growth leads to spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity would cause me to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. That's what he said back in First and Second Corinthians. And so he says, people are going to heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. What did Ahab do? He heaped to himself prophets that told him what, they, what he wanted to hear. And what happened to Ahab? He did not have a harmonious outcome. Look it up for yourself if you don't remember what happened, that he died, and his wife died, actually worse death than he did. Uh, go back to 1 Timothy, because he's actually expounding upon something that he addressed back in 1 Timothy to Timothy. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, see, 2 Timothy explains, 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 3 explains what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter, later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, lying spirits, and teachings of demons. What are these teachings of lying spirits and demonic teachings? They're what he says in 2 Timothy, that these spirits design teaching that tickle our ears, that tell us what we want to hear, and then convince us that the message we're hearing is what God wants us to embrace. Exactly what Ahab believed. And he, he lays it out too. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Yep, going into legalism here. Yeah. Manipulating people, trying to manipulate you into believing that if you touch not, taste not, handle not, this is going to make you more acceptable before God. So again, these deceitful spirits rely upon some type of a legalistic message that promote the lie that you can make yourself like God, independent from God's methodology. Yeah, in both of those, you've got that same word for teaching. I think everybody probably is aware of this, but in verse 1, that word teaching here is the same word over 2 Timothy 4.3, this healthy doctrine, 
It's doctrine that does not govern your conduct. So it's primarily misusing scriptures that God gave, but he didn't give them to you to tell you what to do specifically, such as the Mosaic Law. He didn't give the Mosaic Law to tell us what to do. And that's one of my illustrations here. I wanted to... We're um, looking at what he's saying back in, in, in the Corinthians where he talks about this wisdom from the world versus the wisdom from God. The wisdom from the world system is not necessarily wisdom that we are to reject. With, there is wisdom from the world system that we would be foolish to reject. But we would be equally foolish if we take that same wisdom and then apply it to our Christian our Christian lives in every, in every activity. And I'm going to give you an illustration. Has anybody ever taught you that you shouldn't expect to get something for nothing? Oh, yeah. You got to work for what you get. If you don't work, you don't eat, and that's in the Bible. That's what Tim's <laughs> talking about. Biblical teaching but taking it out of context. And so you better not try to get something. If, if you're trying to get something for nothing, you're gonna end up with a lot of heartache. And you get what you pay for. So everything within this aspect, that's true. Those are true statements. How many con otters are out there trying to weasel you out of your money, trying to give you something to believe that you can get something for nothing? Would you be foolish to embrace all of that? Yes, you would be foolish. The wisdom from the world, that's protecting you from our own human nature. Part of our human nature is selfish or greed, idolatry. I want to get something for nothing. And the world, part of the world wisdom deals with some of the aspects of our sin nature. Don't expect to get something for nothing. But let's take that into the Christian life. What is grace? Getting something for nothing. No, it isn't. It's Is getting something it, that you don't deserve okay. because Jesus paid for okay. our yeah, I can, sins. I can, yeah, like re rephrase that. Something yeah. that I didn't that I didn't earn. Yeah. Getting something that I don't earn. Thank you. That that didn't cost you. Anything. It didn't cost me anything. Yes, it did. It, it cost. cost. It cost Christ. His, Jesus his blood. says, yeah. "Come yeah. in right. the Old Testament. Come to me and buy. Those who have no money, come to me and right. buy." Right. But yeah. he paid for our sins. Right. It exactly. was not free. It was a but huge But the idea cost. here is that I get something, I get, at, with grace, I get something that I don't pay for. I get something that for me cost me nothing. And so that's what grace, it cost me nothing. It did cost, but it didn't cost me anything. But the world system says if you try to get something for nothing, that you're going to end up with, that you're foolish. And in most cases, that's a true statement. So we have aspects of the world system that are wise when we apply it to living within the world system. But when we try to bring some of these things over into, into the Christian life, we can end up completely destroying the very tenets of the Christian life. We can destroy grace. Um, there's another one I had here. Um, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. That's a true statement when it comes to the things in the world system. But I'll tell you, the salvation that God offers me, it sounds too good to be true. And the wisdom of the world system, God, uh, Satan takes his messengers and tries to take that and apply that ideology to the doctrine of grace. And so you have grace perverted within Satan's religious systems, plural, within the world system, because he wants you to endorse his system, not God's system. God's system, for us, is based upon grace. Satan wants you to endorse his system, which is based upon works. How does he do that? By destroying our understanding of what grace is. And so he takes this teaching in the world system concerning too good to be true, it is, can't expect to get something for nothing. Uh, and he takes that and, and, and um, brainwashes his ministers that are functioning within Christianity. And they take that message and they promote it from the pulpit. And so the Christians then endorse that. And I'm thinking specifically of some particular, there's one book in particular, it just illustrates this perfectly. 
and that's by a person who is very popular in Christianity, has been for years, and still is, I believe, today, John MacArthur, Jr. I, I don't know if I still have his, but I was trying, I've been weeding out my library and getting out of stuff that I, I just, uh, not gonna have room for We're paring down our lifestyle and trying to limit myself to basically books that are just going to be positive study aids and, and getting rid of my negative illustrations, which I have, <laughs> It's not hard to find a, a multitude of negative illustrations in the Christian life. But John MacArthur Jr., he, he teaches that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And that sounds really good until you read what his definitions of grace are. And when you compare, when he talks about grace as the Bible teaches it, you know what he calls it? Cheap grace. And he uses it in a derogatory manner and it's something that is to be shunned, and it's something to be spit out, because grace that costs you nothing is worthless. In other words, his grace is based on some element of human works included in that. You have to do something. You, salvation isn't completely free. It's, yeah, it, He's it's free. He's teaching Galatianism. Yeah, it's Galatianism. So, some element of human works. And so, Satan takes his message and convinces people within Christianity, and I, I would hesitate to call him a Christian, but I, uh, I'm not gonna go down that road just because I don't know his heart, but the point is, if he is a Christian, he has embraced Satan's methodology as far as uh, the grace of God goes and has perverted it. And this is somebody who is influential in Christian circles has written multitude of books that have been bestsellers in Christian circles, and that message then gets spread out to, and then Christians endorse it. That's why Timoth Paul warns Timothy, uh, some are going to depart from the faith, devoting themselves. This word devoting uh, to refers to, to um, facing and embracing. It's like, have I got the right, I think the right word here, or to pay attention to it. Yeah, att attending to spirits, pay attention to it. It's a word, it's a it's a preposition cross, which means to be facing, and echo to have. So it's it's like <coughs> something grabs your attention and you face it, and it's, it looks like something you want. It's wrapped in a nice package. It's what I want, it's what I I'm hearing, I like what I hear, and so I gotta have it. And so that's what he says. These people will embrace that the, if these deceitful spirits will grab your attention and promote these doctrines that will grab your attention and they will tickle your ear. They'll sound really good, such so as one will reach out and embrace it. And he says to to beware of that. And so obviously, the very first place this begins is within the world system. He promotes it with the unsaved, but he directs it toward the saved. And every everything within the world system generally is um, tainted, I'll use that word, is tainted with that uh, that lie that Satan is trying to promote. But he goes in, when he's dealing with Christianity, he actually goes into some very specific elements of Christian doctrine that we're start, starting to look at next week. It begins with the gospel of salvation because that's where the, the beginning of our transformation takes place. And that gospel of salvation is perverted. But then it goes into... Uh, our present tense salvation and how we live the Christian life. And Satan's methodology is, is um, all these verses that, he, that he's dealing with here primarily are dealing with our present tense salvation because he, uh, obviously with the unsaved, it begins with the gospel of salvation, but the methodology that he uses does not end there. If Satan's methods ended with a rejection or acceptance of the gospel of salvation, we would have nothing to battle against in the, in the realm of spiritual foes. But Satan continues his attack by trying to hinder us from embracing the truth that God can transform us in this present time, transform our lives into the image of Christ using his methodology. And Satan tries to sell us a bill of goods that we can uh, pull up. Uh, you hear this phrase a lot of times, a popular phrase, bootstrap religion. Pull us up by our own bootstraps. Uh, usually that's used in relationship to initial salvation, but it can be used in the realm of present tense salvation too. I'm trying to transform myself, but um, Satan is involved in that, and we'll look at some specific doctrines that I believe are, are influenced in that, and um, then we'll end this uh, 
probably in another two or three weeks, three, three, four, three or four weeks at the most. And uh, my plan is if, if, no, if, if nobody else is desiring to take over the class, which I'm certainly more than happy to let somebody else uh, run with the baton for a while, if, if you're inclined to have the time, have the desire to have something you're working on, why you, I'm more than happy to, to stop from that. Uh, but the next subject we're going to probably be looking at when, when I teach again is going to be a series that um, is, I think, largely misunderstood, and that's a study on who God the Father is, something that is largely ignored by systematic theologies, and it's actually been quite a bit of work in that over the last quite a, quite a while. I'm finding some things that I think are interesting, so I thought I might share some of those. So, any other comments? I know I'm a little bit over here. That's a nice way of saying if you have any questions, come ask me afterwards. <laughs> Father, we do thank you that, um, again, we have the word and you've not left us uh, ignorant for your devices. Uh, your will is not a mystery to us. It's only a mystery if we have not availed ourselves of the means by which to know what your will is. And we have that revelation in your word. And so, Father, help us to be ones that endorse and embrace uh, your teaching, your word, your methods and recognize to uh, what our what our part is and direct faith at the promises that you've given to us uh, that you said that you will accomplish and uh, make a distinction between what our part and what your part is and just trust you to take care of the end result. 